Welcome to Blitzcast, an NFL Draft podcast brought to you by NFLDraftBlitz.com. And now, your hosts, Alex Kavtov and Ed Hunt. I'm excited to introduce our special guest for this week. It's Mark Nelson, who is from the, it was a consultant for the Radiant Energy Group, and he's also a nuclear energy advocate. Mark, pleasure is mine. Thanks for having me, Eddie. So, I mean, first thing, you know, as I've gotten to know you, I mean, we kind of talked about my career as a sports writer, and you told me that you were a Oklahoma State cross-country runner. Um, so tell me about that. Um, tell me about how it kind of relates to all these global issues and so forth. Sure. Um, I'm from Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. I'm uh 32, about to be 33, so born in 1989, like you, I think. Mm -hmm. And when I was young, the family sport was baseball, and I was terrible at it. I did not find it interesting. I did not find it fun, and baseball did not find me any good at it. So I wanted to be as far out in the outfield on the worst possible t-ball team so I could pluck at grass and hope that the ball didn't come in my direction. In terms of batting, can't even remember any good hits. My entire mm-hmm. t-ball career, it was it was just terrible for me. Practice was boring. The games were boring. We didn't watch sports at home. Sports were not particularly important in the household. Uh, Super Bowl was about the commercials. So I grew up a, a nerdy kid, um, mm-hmm. wanted to read books, and didn't want to go out to play sports that I didn't understand and wasn't good at. However... I could run, and I could run further than my friends, and when we were all little kids, before everybody hit puberty, I could run faster than my friends. So that might have hinted to a family that knew something about sports, maybe we should do some track, or maybe there's a sport that better used running ability than baseball, like distance running, but we weren't a sports family, and it just didn't come up, so I didn't play any soccer, I didn't do any of uh, those posh, uh, rich suburban su- sports like lacrosse. Uh, I just kind of grew up uninterested in sports almost entirely. Occasionally, there'd be a track and field day for the elementary school, and I would be quite good. I'd be the best in my school, and, and in different years, I'd be the best in the district, best in my little corner of Oklahoma City. But it didn't turn into any sports, shall we say. Then something kind of crazy happened. I fell in love with rock climbing and mountain climbing, and one of the activities that I knew I could do to get in shape was running, right? And very rapidly, I found I was pretty good, you know, for Oklahoma City. So that's not great running, and especially all of American running was going through a real low period in the uh, late 90s, early 2000s. So... That's not saying much. But what happened was this, Eddie. I discovered the Internet, and I discovered high school sports. And the reason why I say that is because I suddenly realized that I was just good enough at a sport that in high school there'd be a little bit of social standing, a little bit of recognition. Not a lot. We're talking cross-country in Oklahoma City in the early 2000s. This is before the... You might call it the second running boom and all the commercials on the TV about going running and jogging and headphones and headsets and and stuff like that to go jogging. This is is before all that. 
I still got a ton of harassment and we're just running around Oklahoma City just for being out there running at all. And even worse, when I was wearing decent running shorts. So this is a totally different time, I got to say. Here's what happened, though. I got pretty good by playing around with my friends at practice. You know, there was just like a an old history teacher coach who uh, just wanted to make sure everybody had a good time. And the way you did that is not by assigning too much running. So I'd play around with my friends and I would go home and run eight, ten miles or something when the heat of the day was abated a little, right? So I got decent for anyone who knows knows high school running or running at all. I was okay. So in cross country, got down to about 1640, 1645 over, over grass and hills, which isn't terrible, not amazing. But for my day, that was good enough to put you among the best in Oklahoma in high school. Then I got even better in track. It turns out I have a, a little bit of speed. And when I grew into my body a bit, got decent, about 430 for the mile in high school. And Wait a second, wait a second, 430 for a mile? Yeah, it's it's okay. It's not it's not crazy. So what does that what does that mean? It meant that I would get some letters for little bitty D two and D three colleges and NAIA schools in the prairie states. It wasn't it wasn't that special. Like I made it to state and in several different events in the largest classification of high school in Oklahoma. But um, we're talking a time that would put me as varsity on the vast. I'd say ninety nine percent of the High schools in the country, a 430 would put me on varsity in a lot of the small school classes and the smaller states that would get me to state and maybe even get me a, a few medals or something. But it's not amazing. It's okay. It's I'll tell you what it isn't. It isn't really D1 quality. So mm-hmm. all of this was leading up to the strange story of how I ended up running for a team that, quite frankly, was the Alabama of college running when I was there. It mm-hmm. was the best of the best. It was the best program in the nation, but I had to get lucky. Mm-hmm. And remember, all of this is coming from a family that just wasn't really into sports. I had to get into it myself. I had to discover the Internet and coaching advice from strangers online. You know, uh, It's kind of crazy when you think about it. I insisted on going to the bookstore and looking at the running section and finding training books and buying them and looking through and it just blew my mind how hard people were training compared to my team that was just trying to keep kids from quitting you know just it was just entertainment at my high school for distance running it wasn't real wasn't real athletics so you you uh, i mean sorry 430 for me i mean like or, or four minute mile i uh, just to give you context i was the catcher on the baseball team um, you know what I mean? I, that, that should give you an idea of how fast I am. Um, I'm not very fast. I'm not a very good distance runner. You know what I mean? So, um, I mean, yeah. And, and so, you know, you, you eventually made it to Oklahoma state and you know, how did you get there? So this is the crazy part. I was a big nerd. Like I said, the sports came way later. The love for the sport had to come way after I was good at math and science and uh, taking the SAT and other things like that. Here's what happened. I went off to boarding school for my last year of high school, partly because I had read online that they had an incredible running coach who had been an Olympic runner and that if I went there, not only would I get really good education, but I'd be able to run on a fantastic cross-country team. And, and I did. And, and, and so just, just, to give, my just to give people some context, I'm from the area and I, 
I went to school around there, so I know Phillips Exeter. But, I mean, for people who don't know, um, you know, I, I was actually in Paris, France recently, and I was sitting in an English bar called Harry's, and they literally had a Phillips Exeter, uh, you know, like a, like a, like a, like a row, or a, like a, um, what do you call it, a... Oh, an oar? No, it was a, uh, thing you wear around your neck. Oh, like a tie. Like, it wasn't a tie, though. It was, uh, it was like a, what do you call it? It was like a banner. It was a banner. And it said Phillips Exeter on it. It was in Paris, France. So, I mean, that should give you an idea of kind of like what, what this kind of school is, right? It's, it's like, you know, a lot of presidents have gone there, a lot of famous, you know, in a lot of academic areas. I mean, this is, this is one of the, this is the cream of the cream. I mean, the smartest kid at your, my private schools and the best athletes in my private school um, in middle school, I mean, that's where they went to college. That's where they went to high school, right? Like this is this is a, a very selective school. Well, and I I had an amazing time there. It, sports were even more important to me there because you know I'd be uh, busting my ass in the classrooms, very difficult classes, and then at lunchtime would grab a bite to eat and then run out to the edge of the forest where the track was, and then just run through the New Hampshire countryside, past the apple farms and the 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 trees glowing in red and yellow during autumn is is a beautiful beautiful environment. The winter was really cold as it is, but our our winter my winter there was especially cold, and I actually went running along a frozen river. That was pretty crazy. Uh, probably kind of a big risk, but we tried to stay in the tracks of uh, cross country skiers, and we didn't fall through the ice. But it was an amazing adventure. Here's what it also did, Eddie. It also revealed to anyone looking at college applications that I wasn't Einstein of the Prairie. I'm not, I'm not dumb, but, uh, you know, I went to Exeter, and instead of being the smartest kid that my teachers back in Oklahoma City had ever seen, I was, like, okay among smarter people. So I didn't get into MIT, the number one nerd school in the world, the only place I'd ever wanted to go to college, and it meant I was stuck going back to my local school that my brother was at, my uncles had gone to, cousins, my dad and, and uh, grandfather had all gone to, most of them to do engineering. I was doing engineering at Oklahoma State. Straight off, though, I had a health problem from traveling, and I couldn't even run when I arrived. I was so pissed to be there. All I knew is that I needed to get out of there and find a way back to MIT. Well, it didn't happen. Long story short, I got a got a really fascinating scholarship offer to stick around and then at the end go off to University of Cambridge for grad school. So if I left, I would lose that. And then here's another thing. I found out that the particular philosophy of the coach there at Oklahoma State was that a 430 miler is almost equally worthless to a 410 miler. <laughs> You're never really going to help the team being that slow. You'll help the team if you're a four-flat miler, or better yet, if you're a 355 miler. You're not going to help if you're 410. You're not going to help if you're 420 or 430. That's slow. So he thought that if he had some guys on the team that were really good in the classroom and maybe achieving big things there, it'd serve as a great example to the other runners, and also that it would it would provide a way to um, just have a good mix of personalities and interests on the team. So I worked hard for two, two and a half years, uh, trained as hard as I possibly could whenever I had summer internships or summer, uh, summer study abroad. You know, I was over in Russia and would run really hard in the parks to try to get onto that team. 
and I finally did it. Finally went out with the team um, and ran with the slowest guy on the team in a brutal workout, an infamous Oklahoma State workout where there's a special course out in the countryside with the biggest hills they can find, and you run a 10-miler hard, hard 10 miles. And it's out there in these rural roads, red dirt, these big squares, one mile to a side, and I just put everything into that at the edge of survival, basically. It wasn't a workout. It was, it was even more than a race. And I stuck with that other guy, the slowest guy in the team, who had run at a rival high school in Oklahoma. And it impressed the coach enough that when I just kept hanging around the track, eventually he needed numbers for meet and asked me if I had all my NCAA paperwork in order. And I ran to get it in order. And then I ran into one of the famous problems of our time, Eddie, the NCAA. The oh. rules say that no matter why you have scholarships, you know, I had these engineering scholarships, I had these research scholarships. The NCAA rules at the time were that it didn't matter that they weren't sports scholarship and that, was, that I was worthless in sport. I could not join the team until I paid back a bunch of scholarship money that day. Oh, no. <laughs> yep. So what do I do? I, I'm not, I didn't grow up in a sports family. I, I had done well in high school sports. I had a career picked out. I was going to do engineering. What on earth was I doing staring down this bill that said I had to I had to write a $5,000, $7,000 check, or I couldn't go run for Oklahoma State. And I, you know what? I called my parents, and I love them dearly, but they said, hey, you need, to do, you need to get serious about your studies and decide. It's time to grow up and stop, stop messing around with sports. Wow. And so what, I hung what, up what the did phone. you end up doing? Uh, yeah, I hung up the phone, got out my checkbook, wrote them a check wrote the, for the athletic department, wrote out a big check that they could cash and take my scholarships away. And I went and checked out my incredible stash of, of beautiful, bright orange, electric orange Oklahoma State running gear. And I went to the bus, got on the bus and went and matched my personal best in the in the 3000 meter. That was an wow. uh, indoor meet in, in Wichita, at Wichita State, Kansas, on a kind of rough track and a terribly cold and windy day. But, you know, it was an indoor track, so not a problem except for the warm-up. And uh, I knew I'd made the right decision, but, man, was that painful. All that stuff is totally gone. Like, NCAA doesn't do that anymore. But at the time, that's what it felt like to be a non-scholarship athlete in a non-money sport. And I understand the point of the rules, but it it hurt a lot. I had I, I had to sacrifice to, I mean, to keep doing running. I mean, I just want to say, as a site that call you know follows a lot of college football, it, it is a big problem. You know, when these guys uh, try to walk on um, these programs and how they have to pay their own way, and how some of them don't have the money, but they can play football at that level and. Um, you know, I mean, there was a story recently where a coach said, then you don't have the money to play college football. And so, you know, the guy pretty much just had to quit and it's sad, you know what I mean? And, and it's just, I, I just, you know, there's so much red tape with the NCAA and just, I mean, I think if you listen to this podcast, you know that, you know, I'm all for the NIL, I'm all for players getting paid. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and. All this red tape—it's—it's—it's it's, it's been ridiculous for a long time, and you know I'm glad that I'm glad they're at least experimenting with with stopping it. You know what I'm saying? And I know there's arguments against it, but 
um, yeah, that's that's kind of where that's kind of where I'm at with it. Um, so well, I'm, Eddie. Eddie, I had the, you know, on one hand, I had this ridiculousness that, you know, I was a, I was a pretty, pretty good student at Oklahoma State. I, I uh, was doing a few different degrees. I was doing my Russian degree along and, and a math minor along with my aerospace and mechanical engineering degrees and doing it all with the Honors College. So doing the Honors theses for different, the different degree programs like Russian and engineering. And whenever I do a research scholarship competition or something and I'd win, I'd get a letter from the athletic department saying I needed to pay the money back. Wow. Um, <laughs> on the other hand, on the other hand, I put up with that red tape, and and they do. <laughs> it's clear they do things by the book at Oklahoma State. Let's put it that way. Um, and on and I got to run with Olympians. I got to run with some of the finest and most famous runners in the country. I got to run with national champions, youth national champions from about five or six different countries. Wow. That was incredible. It was I, I ran with one of the fastest young Romanians, one of the fastest young Brits, one of the fastest young Irish kids, some of the fastest Americans still in the record books. And I would get to get up early, 5.30 a.m., 5.30, 5.45 a.m. is when practices started at Oklahoma State during cross country. And, you know, if guys got busted for partying, we'd go at 4.45 a.m. for a, for a, a week, you know. So I've done some incredible runs. Some of my most incredible runs weren't even races. They were workouts to moonlight on the dusty red back roads of Stillwater, Oklahoma. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't give that up for anything, Eddie, for nothing. I'm, I'm <laughs> bring on the red tape. I'll, I'll, I'll get through it in order to run with my, with my boys. And you know what? We won national titles. And wow. I dropped a bunch of time in the mile. So by the time I left, I would have been a an acceptable walk on at other D1 programs. So I got down to about 4 416, 415 area for the mile. Wow. Well, I, I mean, so you know, I, I you know, I'm a sports guy, um, but you know, we we got in we, we got involved with each other for, you know, another reason. I mean, I think we both share kind of an interest in sort of world issues and um, I have an international affairs major and um, there, there's a particularly, you know, big problem uh, in the world, right? And and we talk about, you know, how how sports can be a platform, right, uh, for for these issues, right? And uh, you know, I mean, I believe in anthropomorphic climate change, right? There, I believe in it, and um, so I remember sort of taking a lecture, and it was is on. Uh, sort of the economics of oil and gas, right? And, um, you know, the professor was saying, well, it's kind of like an either-or thing, right? Either we pay our bills today and we use oil, or, you know, in the long term, you know, we use wind and solar. Um, we use wind and solar, you know, to sort of, you know, negate that climate change. And, right, and he was aware of both and so forth, and he talked about the trade-offs, right? But there was this, like, kind of, like, there was a suggested reading for the class, and I didn't do particularly well in the class, but I did read uh, a book that was actually tested on the final, and it was by Robert Bryce, and it was this book called Power Hungry. And if there isn't a book that hasn't changed my view of sort of international affairs, world issues, global issues, it was Robert Bryce's book. And I recommend Power Hungry. I rep recommend his new book. 
Um, Robert's a great guy. You know, he's he's working on a lot of things as a journalist, and I I think he's one of the most underappreciated journalists. But uh, Robert Robert and I actually luckily got in contact with each other, and he introduced me to Mark. Um, so Mark is a nuclear energy advocate. So can you kind of just share with us why? nuclear energy i mean from your standpoint i mean we i mean you and i we can go on to like all these different you know avenues of why it's important whether it's energy independence or so forth or climate change or but i mean like kind of it kind of summarized for me why nuclear energy is important yeah it's it's basically eddie great great transition there nuclear energy is the only way that pretty much every country on earth can make enough energy to be rich while barely impacting the environment or people at all. So there are other ways of making energy that can make your country rich that have both short-term and long-term environmental damage. There are ways of making energy that only impact the immediate environment around it, so like wind and solar, but they, they don't put out carbon emissions while operating, so they reduce overall environmental long-term harm from carbon emissions and other gases. So that's great, but we see that even the richest countries in the world start to struggle in an extreme way when they get more than a certain percentage of wind and solar. It's very, very difficult to run a steady economy, a rich nation's economy, especially in since most of the world's rich countries are up further north with big seasonal shifts. Uh, well, that's that's extremely difficult to run your economy on the weather when the weather is so variable. Um, so, yeah, nuclear has the power of coal as if coal were a million times more powerful. Like mm-hmm. that's that's what it is. And if you didn't have to burn it to get the energy out, people talk about the waste. But because there's almost no fuel, there's almost no waste. And what waste there is is fairly effortlessly contained in big metal and concrete cans. It's kind of easy. Your whole life's worth of energy could produce an amount of waste that's barely bigger than a can of Coke. So that's pretty incredible. It's basically a magic energy source. Now, it's a lot of money to set it up, and once you set it up, it's the best. So big upfront costs. We'd like to get those further down, but we're just bad at doing it because we're out of practice. If we could get better at building nuclear, then that upfront cost would go down. Then the ongoing cost is extremely low and is mostly going to really well-paid workers, both high school education and college-educated workers. The dream of Homer Simpson is alive with nuclear because almost none of the money goes to mining. Almost none of the money goes to minerals. Almost none of the money goes to transportation of those fuels. It just goes straight to workers to make sure the paperwork's up to date, the core's switched around, fuel, new fuel goes in, old fuel goes out, and then the spent fuel is stored correctly on site. It's kind of a perfect energy source, Eddie. So I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of come up with you with two challenge questions, and you know you and I are very aligned when it comes to energy policy. Um, so I'm I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna talk to you, I'm gonna talk to you kind of from the sort of anti-nuclear side that says, um, you know, I've heard, I uh, maybe I've heard in the major media that it's very dangerous, right? Like there's a trade-off, right? Um, you know, the, your, your educated policy person, this is kind of like a, a, you know, a thing people say. Can you kind of give us the science behind that? 
Yeah, sure. And this is where it gets straight back to a sports podcast because I'm going to show you what I learned from sports and what I learned from talking to people about sports. So before I answer you, Eddie, can I ask you, uh, what are your favorite sports teams to follow? Like, who do you root for? Well, I think everyone who listens to this podcast knows I'm a diehard Pittsburgh Steelers fan. Pittsburgh Steelers, you mean Steel City, the Steel place C- that Steel City, the place that's one of the centers in America for nuclear energy. I, I even I even me being the Steeler fan that I am and the nuclear advocate that I am didn't know that. You know what's you know what's wild about steel? It's one of those things that's going to be extremely hard to decarbonize. But here's the other thing. If you aren't making a lot of steel, somewhere growth has stopped, maybe in a big swath of the world. If you if you don't see steel getting made, in many ways, progress itself has come to a stop, and you won't even be able to build your way out of surviving climate change and even just severe weather that isn't climate change. So the reason why I asked you, Eddie, like who do you support, what team do you support, is because I have no business trying to lecture you or convince you about nuclear facts until I know where your heart is, until I know what you root for, until I know what your team is. So we could go and talk about Mason Rudolph, who came out of Oklahoma State and was our big hope after after uh, Brandon Whedon and a few other quarterbacks went through. So I was I was a contemporary of Brandon Whedon. So you know Brandon Whedon didn't I. He, I didn't think he uh, bounced around through the Steelers organization on his way out, but Brandon, I can Brandon tell Whedon, you a, Brandon a fun Whedon anecdote is, about him. Brandon Whedon's well known for being a high draft pick, so very successful at uh, Oklahoma State, but he wasn't a very good Cleveland Brown. He did, didn't have a very good pro career. Well, and you, you don't win them all, but I could I could tell you that if you know who Brandon Whedon is, and I know who Brandon Whedon is, then I can tell you how I sat next to him on a bench <laughs> at. Uh, 6.30 a.m. waiting to do a, a urine test, a street drug test, as part of like institutional controls mandated by the NCAA. Well, you know what? He was about to go make millions months from then in the pros, but he was sitting on a bench next to me, the worst guy in a non-money sport, right? Mm-hmm. And we were equal under the law of having to get up at 6.30 a.m., and make sure we had had enough water so that we could pee in a cup in front of another dude in the bathrooms at the stadium and, and, and to, to show that we weren't doing like pot or coke or something like that. So now that I've told you a story that reveals that I had to stand next to Brandon Whedon while we were waiting to go piss in a cup in early morning as college athletes, <laughs> now we've gotten somewhere where I can understand you well enough to, to feel where you're coming from when you ask me about the dangers of nuclear power, what are you defending? You're defending the right to keep cheering for sports instead of figuring out how to protect your family from clouds of radiation, right? That's mm-hmm. what you're really asking. You're asking how can you concentrate on your fantasy football and make sure the lights stay on? Mm-hmm. How, can mm-hmm. you, how can you go out and coach sports that you care about and tell kids about their heroes and what they're doing and how hard they have to work so you kids need to work too. If I don't know that about you, then I do not have business presuming to lecture you about something as scary sounding as nuclear energy. Mm -hmm. But now that I've got you, 
now that I know where you are, where you stand in the world, I can tell you a little bit more about nuclear safety. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, you actually want to hear? I absolutely want to hear. Sure. So nuclear plants are engineered so tough that they can keep rocking through wars. That's what we're learning with the war in Ukraine, where a deadly war is going on. It's killed a huge number of people. Well, and a nuclear plant is currently the focus of the world's attention because there's a game of cat and mouse happening there. And the nuclear plant is still riding through with a crew under a great deal of stress, and my heart absolutely goes out to them. But in keeping two of the six reactors at Zaporizhia Nuclear Plant online, they've, they've demonstrated something we never thought we would learn and we never wanted to learn, that nuclear plants can make it through warfare. Now, the war isn't over. The nuclear plant's still in Russian hands. It's still on the news. I'm still watching it closely. I was late to this call with you because I was working on the, the latest events coming out of there. But I can tell you that nuclear plants are built really thick and really tough. Next, what I would say about nuclear safety is that because they're so prepared for such an astonishing array of natural disasters and man-made disasters, they are going to be the, some of the last structures standing in the worst disasters that, that, that God can throw at us. So here's an example. Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant in Japan suffered a triple meltdown, and that's inexcusable. That's, that's on the industry. It should never have happened. The seawall should have been taller. The emergency generators that provide backup cooling after the reactor shut down but were still making heat that was hot enough to melt the fuel, th those backup generators should not have been down near sea level. And there should have been a different sequence of safety, safety interventions before uh, the full disaster unfolded. We can't go back and undo that. But what we can say is that disaster management and the inherent safety of the reactors was good enough that not a single person in a triple nuclear meltdown got so much as a radiation burn. Wow. Compare that with Chernobyl, where the whole where the whole reactor four blew up twice and then burned, and and several dozen people died of trauma and radiation after that. That's an unacceptable. Now it's like way less death than a plane crash, with passengers in it. But nuclear has always been judged to a different standard. And you know what? And some days I say that's not fair. On other days I say. Maybe it is fair. It's the most powerful energy source known to man. It's the most powerful. So maybe it's okay that we build the plant super thick with, with huge backup systems. And maybe it's okay that the most, some of the most famous nuclear disasters ever didn't give anyone so much as a hangnail. Now, radiation is scary. And that leads us to my second point, which is the fear of radiation can make non-deadly nuclear disasters deadly that is where we should focus our attention, to helping people understand how to know what's safe or not safe for their family after a nuclear disaster and how to respond in ways that are appropriate considering the risk. We currently respond in utterly inappropriate ways to nuclear plant incidences. It's just not acceptable that the number of people that were evacuated in Japan were evacuated for as long as they were. That has no basis in science. and furthered the fear and stigma around nuclear power, which led to the real deadly outcome in Japan from those meltdowns, which was the turning to 
much more polluting and much more expensive energy sources that led to short-term power rationing and eventually hardship for many people across the nation. That's, that's not okay. But you don't have to sit here and listen to me saying this, Eddie, till you know I care about things that you care about and that I see the world in, in a sufficiently similar way for you to know that I'm not just trying to pull wool over your eyes, that I'm not just trying to trick you or fool you. And I think I, I want to mention something about how I found out the power of sports to make communication between cultures and people and families and sometimes even languages possible. Well, here's one. When I first started traveling by myself after high school, I had become a fan of track and field, right? And there are cities on the East Coast where tons of cab drivers are going to be Jamaican or tons of cab drivers are going to be Ethiopian. Well, guess what? Jamaican cab drivers in the age that Bolt started getting crazy good, 2006, 7, 8, 9, 10, instant conversation starter. Especially fun is that a buddy of mine in the engineering program at Oklahoma State was, was Usain Bolt's nerdy engineering cousin, <laughs> Bradford Bolt. Bradford <laughs> Bolt was a great kid. When his mama found out that he was attempting to train with me to get onto the track team, she got so angry at him and said, we've got enough sports in the family. We need engineering. If I hear you training for that team, I'm going to pull your, pull your tuition money. I'm and boy, I, I tell you, Jamaican cab drivers love that story. And we've got instant conversation about the details of Jamaican sprinting all the way to my destination. Or with Ethiopian cab drivers, immediately I can guess they're probably from Addis Ababa, the capital, and they can't believe I know that. And I have to point out that I run with some good Ethiopian runners. I follow Ethiopian running, that it's you know, the best distance running country. And boy, instant conversation. You have a, an amazing time talking with guys about distance running. These are guys that may have never attempted to run in their life, but in Ethiopia, distance running is life. That is the national sport. And because I know the names of their national heroes, I even know the foods they eat because I got interested in Ethiopian cuisine because I, you know, I followed Ethiopian running. Instant bridge between cultures. Now, I didn't know about nuclear power then, so as you might, <laughs> you might have thought I would use that to talk about nuclear energy. Not then. Nowadays, if I get an Ethiopian Uber driver, yes, I have to admit, occasionally conversations have gone from uh, distance running straight to nuclear power. Interesting. Yeah, I, I didn't know that story, but I love that. Um, so I, I want to take a little bit of a shift. I mean, so let's say there's some of us who are, you know, kind of, you know, from, you know, we're football fans, but we're just not very progressive, right? We're not... We don't really, maybe we don't believe in global warming. We don't see it as a huge issue in our lives. I mean, some of us feel like, hey, I, I you know, I got to feed my family today. I mean, why, why nuclear power for people with that kind of worldview? I mean, you know, and 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 I, I feel like that worldview deserves as much respect as, you know, someone who would agree with me on climate change. Well, can I ask you this? If climate change is so bad, why do we still have Super Bowls, huh? Why do even people who say that climate change is serious watch football? Because sports are life. Because sports are, are a bunch of the meaning of life. Because we want to root for something and we want to be together with other people who share that same cause, who know 
that if we had a battle together, we would fight alongside. That's the meaning of tribe. That's the meaning of belonging, right? And I can tell you that those tribes exist when you talk about anything, including the science behind global warming and what to do about it. This is what I would say to football fans who are super skeptical of the way uh, many so-called environmentalists treat global warming as a cause. They treat it like a sport. They act like it's a sport, and then they claim that you're evil for not for thinking that they only think of it as a sport, and then they go and they reject something like a powerful zero-carbon energy like nuclear. I'm, I'm almost about, if I had to judge, I might side with your football fans who think that there's something rotten in global warming discussions. Now, I do have to say that I am... Sure enough about the science and sure enough about the precautionary principle in general to say that if we can provide for people and keep everybody alive and healthy and and especially prosperous without putting out carbon emissions, well, by golly, we should do it. We really should aim to have a lower impact on the natural environment. It will help, hopefully leave us better prepared to deal with an already uncertain and harsh world. Nature is brutal. We've made ourselves comfortable through a lot of hard work and a lot of machines and a lot of fuels. Let's try to keep the good stuff and, and not have the bad stuff. But for those who absolutely refuse to think that the, the carbon imbalance that we're putting up into the atmosphere compared to what the biosphere takes back down into trees, plants, and peat bogs, and uh, diatomous ooze that sinks down in the ocean from little little shelled creatures that soak up carbon dioxide and, and then uh, sequester it away from the atmosphere. If you refuse to believe that our carbon imbalance is tilting the needle, that's fine. Nuclear energy is so powerful and so effective that some of the biggest expansions of nuclear energy have come from no interest in climate change, just from countries that don't have enough fossil fuels. That's right. France built the largest nuclear fleet per capita in the world, not because it gave a damn about climate change, but because they wanted to be rich, they wanted to be successful, they wanted vacations, they wanted France to be great again after being humiliated in World War II and losing its colonies. And by God, they built out that nuclear fleet because they didn't have coal, they didn't have gas, they didn't have oil, but they had ideas and they had ambition. So they built a nuclear fleet. There you go. That's my message. It's powerful enough that it does a really great job at making your country prosperous and secure. And the fact that it happens to get rid of carbon emissions, that's just a bonus. Just ignore that. Let the liberals have that one. Okay. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to switch gears here, right? Now, let's say I live the slums of Jakarta or I live in the slums of Sao Paulo. Or, you know, I live in an African country um, that's very energy poor, right? But I, 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 don't have, I don't have the resources to know or care about gridiron, right? Like I don't, you know, w w you know, I, I, you know I, I have to work to, to feed my family. Um, I don't, I, I don't, I'm not interested in having a television or having an internet connection. Um, why, why is n nuclear energy important? to indigenous or, um, you know, sort of that, that population of the world that lives on $2 a day? Great question. Well, guess who won the last World Cup in, in soccer, in football? 
Who was it? France, the country with the highest percentage of nuclear energy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You yeah. think that was coincidence that a country with tons of nuclear reactors was able to become uh, World Cup champions? I don't. Mm-hmm. And, and, and explain why. I'm sort of joking, but people love a joke. They love seeing that even if you can talk about serious things, you don't take yourself so darn seriously all the time. <laughs> so there you go. Think about what I had to know there. I had to know about France's nuclear energy fleet. I had to know that soccer is the, is the most popular sport in the world, the sport of the poor and downtrodden across the global south with the minimum entry requirements, anything round, and you can have a street game of soccer, right? And then I had to know that France won the World Cup. So I'm, I'm basically explaining to you how sports knowledge makes instant bridges of understanding and empathy that allow me to talk to people about nuclear. Now, that's not the same as saying to those folks why nuclear is important, but I will say this. We use the word developing to imply that countries are just on this path where if they just keep up, they will become rich like us. Eddie, it's just not true. Devastating things are happening around the world today because rich countries messed up the energy supply and then went buying up all the fossil fuels suddenly in a panic because they had the money and poor countries didn't. There are going to be so many people suffering and dying across the global south over the next year because Germany decided to shut off its nuclear plant and buy the fuel that was destined for poor countries instead. Yeah, Germany, climate change champions, environmentalists and, and humanitarian Germany, they're going to go out and kill as many people across the global south as it takes to try to keep their energy supplies up when they ruined their own energy system. That's enough to get people angry. That is a conversation that people do want to have. I talked to people from across the global south at last year's uh, climate conference, UN Climate Conference in Glasgow, COP26. Uh, I, I talked to people from the Congo who were trying to get investment in their dam. They wanted electricity. Meanwhile, Germany was galloping around trying to get countries to sign up to get rid of their own coal plants. This is Germany who is desperately turning back on their coal plants and trying to find every lump of coal that will ship across the seas to make up for their disaster of an energy policy relying on Russia. That matters to people across the global south, and that's why nuclear is so important, because all it takes is one flight, one shipment of fuel from a cargo jet, and you can power a million people for a, for a year. That's the magic of nuclear. A single cargo ship can, can rock up to your coast, and you can offload enough fuel for 10 million people for 10 years if you need to. That's the magic of nuclear. So I, and I, I, sure enough, countries that are actually developing, not just called developing, but are developing, countries like Bangladesh, countries like Egypt, Vietnam, countries like Turkey, these are countries that are constructing nuclear plants to not get stuck at that point where you're relying on the fossil fuels that the dishonest, lazy-thinking, unprincipled Western countries are suddenly buying up after saying that they cared about climate change. That's, I think, a good conversation after I make a, good, make a funny joke about soccer. <laughs> so I, I want to ask you, I mean, let's say, let's say, um, you know, we, we have a, we, we have a, we have a long history of racism in this country, right? Like a lot of us who like football, I mean, we, 
we know we know something about you know the the issues around race in America, right? Um, you know there there was the, you know the death of George Floyd and sort of the aftermath of that and uh, the rise of Black Lives Matter and um, you know to and that movement is a little bit dying down in popularity, but I think there's some people who kind of who feel that way about society and um, you know, poverty is 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 a, is a real problem in their life, or you know, they're middle class and working really hard, you know, sixty hours a week to put food on the table, or some of them are playing football and don't love football, but are you know, but but play football because it's their because it's their job, right? Who what what do you say to them? Why why maybe if I make it, why why would I want to use my platform for nuclear energy? First, let me say that running was absolutely essential to me having friends of other social classes and other races. I, I was, I guess, lucky looking back to live in an extremely racially mixed area of Oklahoma City. Like I've seen these uh, color-coded racial maps of American cities. I was in something that looks like a complete kaleidoscope, complete chaos. White people, Vietnamese people, uh, blacks, Black Americans, Mexican Americans, Central American Americans, um, Filipino immigrants. We had people from across the global South, the American South, and uh, it was just an incredible cross-section of society. Hey, we even had uh, recent immigrants from West Africa that didn't quite fit in to the social hierarchy, to the social uh, environment there, even though you would think to us white people, they're all African-American. Nope, there's a difference. And I would never have understood that world. I would never even seen it, except that I did sports instead of being in my little nerdy honors classes, which were almost entirely white and Asian um, at, my, at my public high school. So the first thing I wanted to say is that sports are absolutely essential, in my opinion, for building bridges ac across communities of race. I re-experienced that getting into my next loves, I guess my next sporting love after running, now that I don't run as much, that's basketball. Starting to play basketball in a gym in Oakland when I lived out there for a number of years was really important. Not because we talked about race, but because we were just spending time together as a bunch of dudes who wanted to work hard, sweat a bit, and play some basketball, I think that that is irreplaceable. And a lot of the awkwardness and the weirdness of, of the way white folks approach the Black Lives Matter movements has been that a lot of white people may feel bad about racism, but they spend almost no time with people who are black. They, they don't invite them to their houses. They don't have drinks with them. They don't have coffee with them. There's almost no contact except for this, these, these sort of sudden outbursts of, of social organizing. And you just can't fix stuff without having friendships and communities that get together in person. So that's the first thing I'd say. In order to say why is nuclear energy, and let me broaden that, why is energy, reliable, cheap energy essential? It's because it's what makes city life possible. The reason why so many people can live in a city without dying at age you know, 40 and below, like in the times, the worst times of air pollution from the Industrial Revolution, 
is because of ultra efficient, ultra cheap energy from big power plants that are located further away from the city limits. That is essential to cleaning up the air quality and at least giving people a chance to get over the the problems we used to have even more of, like childhood asthma or I mean, acid rain was a little bit of a little bit more of a pressing issue for the physical outside of buildings and for trees and plants, but it still was a sign that a lot of pollution was coming up from coal. Now, if you didn't have the coal pollution and you didn't have electricity, you'd end up in a much worse shape than having the pollution. Why why choose? Why choose between those things, Eddie? How about we have the reliable cheap power without any of the particulates and the um the the other pollution that comes the solid pollutions that come out of the fossil fuel plants yet at the same time there are a lot of people who argue that there are a ton of clean jobs available in wind and solar and especially they want to target communities of color in america they say hey you'll do so well if we pass this law requiring our state to build a huge number of solar panels and wind turbines but here's the thing eddie those solar panels aren't aren't at least to date, have, aren't being made in America. They're being made in sweatshops or worse, uh, labor camps overseas. They're not. They're not for American jobs. And then installing wind and solar because the wind and solar produce such dilute, low, <laughs> low density energy. It means you have to spread out over huge areas. So it would take any settled community of workers and force them to be out over huge distance distances it's difficult to keep up family life whilst keeping a job doing solar or wind construction it's a little bit more like the loneliness and the distances involved in say oil field jobs in the giant hinterlands of our nation in the so-called flyover states which is where i come from so i think that nuclear is special because it is a huge concentration of jobs tax money wealth clean air clean water all ultra tightly monitored and you can build families, you can build communities, you can build intergenerational wealth, equity, even if that's the word we want to use, with a century-old nuclear plant. That's where we're headed. And I think that's what will make sustainable communities that that work for people of every race. So I want, I want to talk about, I mean, you, you definitely had your struggles, you know, going through college, but I'm interested. I mean, you know, as a nuclear energy advocate, you've gotten to sort of, rub elbows with a lot of people, be on a lot of big networks. I mean, this is not the biggest platform you've ever been on. I don't care. I've never gotten to nerd out so much about not the nerd stuff, but the sports. I absolutely love sports. I love figuring out what teams people support that I've never heard of and hearing about what the big storylines. One night, I spent four or five hours going way deep on sumo. And that was right before, almost by chance, that was right before I had a number of business reasons to make trips to Japan. How about that? An absolutely fascinating moment to be in Japan, a country that has some recent trauma from nuclear energy, like we said with Fukushima Daiichi and the triple meltdown in 2011. Instant bridge building to talk about the ongoing, uh, there's six per year top level sumo matches and to talk to people about the ongoing sumo tournament and their favorite wrestlers. That, I mean, that's just an extraordinary chance to link up with people, to link up with people's values, what they're excited about. 
it ends up leading to the question, what are you doing in Japan? Why are you here? Oh, well, I'm, there's a conference, I'm giving a speech, or I'm giving a talk, or I'm visiting Fukushima Daiichi to see how the cleanup operations are going. And they already hear me as somebody with a deep level of respect for the traditions and the culture of their country. It's really irreplaceable just irreplaceable. Now, Japan is one of the most distance-running crazy countries in the whole world, so the fact that I've run a, a relay race with my uh, Cambridge teammates over in Japan, that really perks up a conversation. But yeah, that five-hour, six-hour deep dive in sumo one random evening when I'm sure I had much better things to do and things that I needed to be doing, that's paid off in conversation, in real life, in Japan in talking about nuclear energy. So Mark, you know I'm a supporter. Um, how, how can how can the listeners um, support you? I mean, maybe through philanthropic, through their voice. I mean, how, how can we support you in your work? The number one thing we would love to have is the passion, just a little bit of the passion you may put into following or watching sports. We need you on our team. What does that mean? It means reach out to me at, at Energy Bands, E-N-E-R-G-Y-B-A-N-T-S, Energy Bands. Well, reach out to me there. My DMs on Twitter are always open, and I can figure out where you're from, what sports teams you like, what's your interest in nuclear energy, and how to put you together with a team that's fighting for it in your area. So that's the biggest thing. Now, if you've got less free time and you've got money and you want to support this cause mothers for nuclear mothers for nuclear is a fantastic organization based out in california but with chapters around the world now where mothers often working at nuclear plants to support their families and to make clean energy they are fighting to save their jobs they are fighting to save their power plants from people who are trying to shut those plants down and probably support just the worst sports teams you've ever heard of. <laughs> or worse, these are these people trying to shut the nuclear plants down, they say that sports are stupid and that you're stupid <laughs> for following them. So isn't that awful? The only way you can fight against those douchebags is to help us help mothers for nuclear safe nuclear plants. And if you look them up, you'll find a way that you can donate through their website or get in touch with me and I'll, I'll connect you up. They've been outstanding partners and allies in some of my efforts, uh, one, of, one of which is the Stand Up for Nuclear Movement, which basically brings together volunteers and enthusiasts and advocates from around the world to fight against nuclear closures in their area and to fight for adding nuclear plants if they don't have any. Mark, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for being on Blitzcast. Have Thanks for having me, Eddie. And go Steelers. Go Steelers.